welcome to Carrying on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Carrying on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we're highlighting the June-July combined issue of Caring for the Ages from 2022. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. I'm thrilled to be back. All right. Well, so it looks like this June-July issue has a special section that highlights some of the content from our great annual society meeting that we held in March in Baltimore. And so the first article we're going to discuss is the front page top article from our senior reporter, Joanne Caldy, that recapped our general session on policy, uh, which featured David Grabowski, Mary Knapp, and Emily Nicoli, about the perennial pain point of the nursing staffing shortage. Uh, And for those of our listeners who didn't attend in person or virtually, Beth, uh, what stood out for you about this session? So so I was very fortunate. I I live outside of Baltimore, so I got to attend in person. Um, And so I got to hear this session um, live and in the flesh with my mask on. Um, And it it was really a great one to kick off the conference. So while nursing staffing shortages have really been prevalent in post-acute and long-term care for many, many years, the impact of COVID-19 has really made this staffing crisis unique. Mm -hmm. And I I think we find ourselves in a place now where nursing staff are both physically and emotionally exhausted, and it's really going to take a significant amount of effort to try to retain the nursing staff that are still with us and then rebuild the nursing workforce for the future. And so this session um, kind of gave us some um, tips and pointers of, of how we can do better about that. Yeah, and I think one point that this article and really a lot of the other coverage and, and some of the other meetings made was that medical directors and other practitioners within post-acute and long-term care can help nursing staff and other staff uh, in the facilities feel valued, which in turn can improve staff morale and uh, retention and all that good stuff. So what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So probably one of the um, easiest things to do is when, if you're a, a 
someone prescribing treatments or medications, um, just think about it before you order it. Uh, the licensed nurse or the medication aide is often spending a lot of time performing treatments and administering medications. And physicians and advanced practice providers may want to reconsider orders for vitamins or uh, you know, if you want to check finger sticks more frequently, maybe that could be for a short period of time, or uh, maybe the patient doesn't need to be on daily weights for uh, two weeks and one week would suffice. Uh, and just kind of uh, getting the practitioners and pharmacists together who can work to reduce doses, eliminate um, kind of uh, duplicate uh, times and, and try to group medications together. And by reducing this workload a little bit, it can really help um, when there are staffing crises. Some of the other things to do, and they're kind of simple, but they're so meaningful to the staff. And it, you know, not just for nurses and CNAs, but for all of the staff in long-term care is get to know them, um, whether they're the nurses, the CNAs, our housekeeping staff, um, our, our individuals who work in the kitchen and the dining room, get to know them, ask them questions, show appreciation. And when you're dealing with a phone call, always be courteous. Um, and if there's something that the, the nurse maybe um, is unfamiliar with and is reporting a lab test that is kind of not overly relevant, even though it may be out of the, the normal range, um, use that as a teaching moment. Uh, and I think uh, Emily Nicoli uh, kind of said it well, it all boils down to being kind. <laughs> you can't go wrong with that. And <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I suspect that most of our listeners, I mean, if they're practicing in the same care setting you and I are practicing in, they're probably kind people. I, and you, know, you hate to generalize, but uh, yeah. Uh, and just on your point about, uh, you know, making orders that are that make sense and that are more efficient, uh, I, I think that can impact nursing and it also can impact our residents. And you see these people coming in with orders for, uh, you know, nebulizers, Q6 hours. And it's like, hey, wake up, it's midnight, it's time for your nebulizer. Hey, wake up at 6 a.m., it's time for your nebulizer, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, all right, well, next on a somewhat related topic, let's move to your caring collaborative column on the power of positive relationships among peers and staff in the nursing home and presumably other healthcare settings too, and really grocery store, everything. But, uh, but this relates both to people who work in nursing homes and those who live there, right? So what are the key points and what can our listeners do to promote collaboration and appreciation for both of these populations? So it, it's really no surprise that positive social relationships with peers, you know, resident peers, in the long-term care setting can in positively influence life satisfaction, well-being, the ability to thrive in that setting, and can also really decrease feelings of loneliness. Hmm. And um, a recent article in BMC Geriatrics in 2020 um, found that among cognitively intact nursing home residents, social engagement with peers has been associated with greater longevity. And this is even after controlling for the impact of comorbidities, functional ability, facility characteristics, and contact with friends and family outside the post-acute and long-term care setting. So those relationships really are powerful. 
I actually was um, at my uh, clinical practice yesterday in, a, in an assisted living facility. And one of the gentlemen who was there was struggling a bit um, because he felt like um, he didn't have a peer group. Um, the, the unit he was on was all women and one gentleman. And um, he, you know, he felt that he really was kind of missing that connection. So we, we were strategizing a couple of ways he could uh, get to meet some other people. But uh, some things we can do as staff to promote those peer-to-peer -peer relationships are one, introducing newly admitted residents to other peers with similar interests, hobbies, or life experiences. Um, and it can be done during recreational activities. Um, it does require the staff to have a good knowledge of, of the residents and, and some of the things that they enjoy. Another key factor is optimizing residents' ability to retain and maintain their mobility for as long as possible. We know that um, physical proximity is so important for developing a friendly peer relationship. And so if you can have residents who can move towards the people they wanna be with, but also remove themselves from the company of others of whom they might find uh, stressful or maybe a little overstimulating. And another thing we can do as staff is try to match residents with similar communication and cognitive capacities. And this, you know, really can minimize the chance of frustration when there's a, a, a large discrepancy between um, peers' ability to converse and remember. Some things we can do about um, supporting staff and resident relationships um, on the staff side and you know, I, I think we all do the best we can with this is being responsive to the patient's needs. Um, the patients we care for rely on us for so many things and um, partnering with a staff member who's familiar and responsive, um, you know, for the resident, it helps that resident to build trust early and will go a long way in um, having that positive relationship. And, we're also busy um, in terms of delivering care and doing all the things we're supposed to. And although we don't have a whole lot of time for socializing, um, particularly during these staffing shortages, um, having a few moments where you're with a patient, maybe that you're not delivering care. So perhaps you're completing some documentation or you're walking by um, the unit and offering a friendly hello or a mutual hug. Um, so all those little things can make a big difference. Yeah, well, that's a lot. And I think one of the things you said uh, about, uh, you know, matching residents, uh, you know, they have roommates and so on that are of similar capacity. I've also had the experience sometimes where um, somebody maybe with a little bit of a maternal instinct or, you know, wanting to look out for somebody who maybe is is not a great peer for them, but they they care about that person and they're able to sort of take them under their wing. So there's a whole variety of things that can uh, I think, make our residents' lives feel more meaningful. Uh, the other thing, you know, resident council and some places have uh, family councils. Uh, and I think Dr. Terrace King, who spoke at the annual meeting, talked about uh, resident family and community councils uh, that I think could be very helpful in getting people to feel more sort of uh, part of a family or part of a peer group. Uh, but I don't know about you, but in, in a lot of my facilities, it's a little disappointing and frustrating because there's just maybe, you know, three or four people that attend the resident council meetings, even though there's a whole bunch of long-term residents there. I don't know if you have any, any tips on how to get them more engaged. 
Yeah, I, I think it it's challenging. Um, I, the, a lot of the facilities that I uh, work in have a large percentage of um, residents and patients with dementia. Mm. And so um, the, the resident participation may be more limited. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's more limited. And with families and friends being so busy, um, you know, trying to find consistent times that work for people's schedules, um, it can be challenging. Now that we have, um, you know, are a little more comfortable, comfortable in the virtual world, I think that that lends us some opportunities. Um, mm. So, you know, using more in terms of uh, virtual capacity. And also when people come with concerns, using that as an opportunity to, to engage them to improving things in the community is also another strategy. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for that. Carrying on the go will resume after this brief message from the foundation. Susan Levy, the chair of the Foundation for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and we're pleased to have this opportunity to share a glimpse of our mission and accomplishments due to donations from many of you listening, our generous donors. The Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Foundation is the only philanthropic entity dedicated exclusively to support and enable professionals and clinicians working in this critical service area. We've had the distinct pleasure to support such worthy projects as the Futures Program, providing more than a million dollars since inception, to support practitioners developing their knowledge in their pursuits of service. Other funding priorities have included research on physician quality development measurements, the AMDA app, the Drive to Deprescribe initiative to optimize medication use in post-acute and long-term care, and AMDA's COVID-19 vaccination toolkit. Ongoing support will enable us to continue programs realizing our mission to support the quality of life for persons in the post-acute and long-term care spectrum and to inspire future and current practitioners and demonstrate the value of a trained and engaged workforce. Visit our new website at paltcfoundation.org. Help us if you can and will, and thank you for your continued commitment to our field. And now back to our podcast. So uh, let's move on to our third article for discussion. This is also from page one of the June, July issue. And this comes from our longtime collaborator, Alan Horowitz, who is an attorney, uh, previously a nurse, and I believe previously a respiratory therapist. Uh, and he has been a, a great, uh, outstanding contributor to AMDA over the years and a lot of our educational uh, offerings and so on. So this article is about a recent news story I think many of our listeners uh, have probably followed, where a nurse named Redonda Vaught was criminally prosecuted for a medication administration error that turned out to be fatal, where, you know, she gave, uh, instead of giving Versed, she gave Vecuronium, uh, which, uh, you know, put the person into respiratory paralysis and, and they died. So, Dr. Gallick, can you briefly recap the story and, and why it's significant to our listeners and really healthcare providers everywhere? So, so yeah, I, Carl, I think you did a good job um, summarizing most of the key points of what actually happened. This was in Tennessee, um, and the um, nurse overrode the um, medication carts dispensing um, warnings, um, and so that was one of the things where the, the error happened. And we do know that. Um, this is not at all uncommon for there to be overrides of warnings. 
um, in terms of um, medications, even when I'm prescribing, you know, it will ask me, do I really want to prescribe this medicine? Um, Because there may be uh, a a drug drug interaction that's potential there. Um, And so um, that unfortunately happened in this case where she she overrode, but it was a, a tragic error that resulted in the patient's death. Ms. Vaught did self-report um, her error. Um, her license was revoked and she lost her job. And she was convicted of reckless homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. And um, she could have been sentenced up for up to 12 years for this error. But instead, the judge uh, sentenced her to supervise probation for three years. And that um, uh, ruling just came down on May 13th of this year. So, you know, I guess the big points here are, you know, with a, a pattern I think that we're seeing in terms of criminalization of medical errors and kind of seeking to punish a single healthcare provider rather than addressing systematic issues. So um, the neuromuscular blocker that was used um, apparently uh, was very was on the cart, but was very rarely used. And maybe that's something that didn't need to be there. Um, other, other issues in terms of um, being a really alert in terms of the over, you know, um, warning system. So there's some warnings that are for interaction and then others you know, that um, may be um, you know, something that it won't administer the medicine unless two people you know, go ahead and authorize it. So why not fix the system and incorporate some fail-safe measures? Um, The other concern about this is with the criminalization of medical errors, it may result in a decrease in voluntary reporting of medical errors in the future. And uh, unfortunately, this could have a a very significant negative impact on patient safety um, because there won't be, um, you know, things, things may be covered up. Yeah, fear of uh, retribution. Yeah, that's scary. And I I think you bring up a good point because, I mean, it probably wouldn't surprise a nurse pulling something off of a a Pixis or something uh, if it was Versed. Well, sure, it's a benzo, you know, it's 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 a controlled substance, you know, it's it's sedating and so on. But it's not likely to be deadly. Right. Um, You'd think for for Vecuronium, they'd have something right, you know, a flashing red light or something that wasn't just a regular override or something. So I hope the hospital has uh, done something to to improve that. Uh, and I think you're right uh, about the the chilling effect it might have on uh, people's willingness to be transparent and to try to uh, avoid having these errors happen in the future if they're that afraid of of literally you know criminal uh, proceedings. And meanwhile, in California, there's legislation pending that would make certain acts of prescribing or administering psychotropic medications to nursing home residents without informed consent, a criminal act. So I, I just think it's, it's an alarming tre- trend to try to criminalize medical and nursing practice. Uh, I mean, we know that errors are made and uh, they're generally not made. I mean, it's not really a criminal act, they're, they're errors. Uh, and you know, let's not even talk about Texas where aiding and abetting or, or performing an abortion could be considered worse than, than the rape for which the abortion was being contemplated. So I'll just put that out there. Yeah, <laughs> um, ch- challenging times and things popping up all over the country. 
Yeah, the other one, Alan's article didn't talk about it, but there was a somewhat similar recent story, which was that of Dr. William Hussle, uh, who was criminally charged with 14 counts of murder in Ohio for ordering excessive doses of fentanyl for ICU patients. And in that case, uh, it wasn't a medical error because, I mean, these are the orders that he gave, uh, you know, a thousand micrograms of fentanyl or in one case, 2000 micrograms uh, for very ill ICU patients. Uh, you know, these were the orders he gave and they were carried out by nursing staff. But Dr. Hustle was acquitted on all of these charges, any one of which, uh, you know, a guilty uh, verdict could have resulted in a life sentence. So, um, do you have any insights into that case that our listeners might benefit from? So I'm not familiar with a lot of the details. Um, I, some of them, um, I, my understanding is that the doses were 10 times the amount of what a typical palliative dose of fentanyl would be. And one of the patients received a dose 20 times higher. Um, there, there was concern, I guess, and reporting done by two of the hospital pharmacists related to this particular physician's prescribing patterns of fentanyl. Um, and it, but the, I think it came down to an issue in order to convict um, the physician, they would have had to prove that he intended to hasten the patient's deaths. And all along, um, you know, kind of the, the the point was given, at least by the defense, that this was his discretion in deciding what was best for his patients. Um, and it sounds like there were other people involved, and up to twenty three other people were involved were fired from the right. hospital. Yeah. And you know. Um, he wound up surrendering his medical license in Ohio, and later it was revoked after he surrendered it. Um, but I think it gets back to uh, an issue of um, appropriate use of opioids at end of life and really having a lack of standards on pain medication, you know, in these settings. Um, and um, there's still, um, you know, even though he's not been criminally convicted, he um, faces several wrongful death claims through civil cases, which is kind of what we're used to seeing. This reminds me a little bit, um, not totally, but a little bit, it brought back a memory of um, Memorial Medical Center in New Orleans during uh, Hurricane Katrina. Yes where um, a grand jury decided not to indict a physician and two nurses who were accused of euthanizing for critically ill hospital patients. There's, for those who've not read it, there's an excellent book and I get no money out of it or anything <laughs> called Five Days at Memorial. It was very well done and really presents a uh, comprehensive uh, view with, um, you know, multiple different viewpoints and interviews with some of the people who were involved um, in, in that scenario. So I, if you have never read it, it's a, it's a interesting read and really kind of gets to the heart of some of these ethical issues. Yeah. Those are, I mean, those type of disaster situations, you'd like to hope that if it were you or your loved one there, that there'd be somebody there that would, you know, allow you to have a, a, a you know, a benign exit, but of course, euthanasia is not legal in our country, but Hey, that's a whole nother issue. Right? So <laughs> let's, let's move on. So, uh, the last article we're going to discuss is Christine Kilgore's article on page five, which recounts some of the content from one of our annual meeting sessions out of Rush University on formulating and communicating prognosis for our patients with serious illness 
And I know this is a topic of great interest to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners because it is some of the most important work we get to do. Uh, and of course, not everyone wants to know their prognosis. So I think you know we have to start by making sure that they wanna have that conversation in the first place. But uh, there are some excellent tools and links in this article and in the recorded presentation, if people have access to that. And uh, so what do you think are some of the high points there, Dr. Gallick? So this was one of my favorite um, presentations at the conference. I, I was fortunate enough to get to, to listen to this one and, and really enjoyed it. And um, so um, hats off to uh, Dr. Gunteri and, and the group that, that did this presentation. Uh, so, um, I, and there are some simple points, but like oh so powerful. And I think sometimes in our rush to kind of communicate with people, we forget some of these basics. Uh, so one point is making sure as clinicians that we ask families first about their understanding of where their loved one is with the illness, um, rather than just jumping into describing things. So like, help me understand, or I'd love to find out what others have told you about, you know, your family members. Um, condition and seeing right. what the family member understands. And you brought up that great point um, about getting permission to provide perspective and kind of asking families how much they want to know. Um, that That's so important as well. And uh, Dr. Gunteri also advised using a framework called REMAP, and it stands for reframe, expect emotion, map out values, align your patient's values and goals, and propose a plan. Um, and there's some wonderful examples, and he actually kind of gives you, the article gives you the dialogue of, of how to go about doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the article, there's some um, wonderful uh, kind of call out box with uh, online resources that are free in terms of clinical frailty scales, e-prognosis, um, uh, as well as um, the um, REMAP uh, framework that was originally designed to be used um, in oncology, but has had um, you know wider use now has been really helpful. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's really important uh, tools, and you know I think probably most of our listeners who are clinicians are are pretty adept at having these conversations, but there's no question that you can get better at it. And, uh, you know, a prognostication, of course, it's not a not an exact science. I mean, it's probably a lot better in oncology than it is in, you know, like people with dementia that uh, it's very hard to predict. Are they going to have an aspiration event or, you know, what's actually going to be, you know, the the terminal event for them? But uh, I, I just highly recommend that people take the time to read this article and to, uh, you know, continue to hone, hone all of our skills on, on that. So um, before we wrap up, I wanted to briefly mention a few of the other items, and maybe you have some others, Beth, but uh, there is an article on the controversial drug aducanumab or aduhelm uh, that was approved for Alzheimer's and the limited coverage that it was approved for. Uh, then there's a piece on intimacy in the nursing home, a <laughs> perennial favorite topic. Uh, there's a public policy review that, that relates back to the annual meeting, some frailty assessment tools, and a success story from North Dakota, where our AMDA Society chapter has been able to get a public listing of all nursing home medical directors implemented. Uh, great work and work that we've been working on 
for quite a while now on a national basis uh, uh, with uh, limited success, but I think we're starting to move that needle. Uh, anything, any other articles you wanted to highlight, Beth? I think those are some great ones um, to, to mention. And um, uh, all, some, but not all of the articles were things mentioned at the conference. Um, so I encourage you to, to, you know, check it out. All right. Well, Beth, I want to thank you and our managing editor, Tess Bird, for putting together this great uh, combination issue that recaps some of the highlights from our annual meeting in March. Uh, before we close, any final comments or wisdom to share? We're in, we're in summertime, so for those of us who've been cooped up a little bit, it's a great time to get outside, get our residents outside, um, let them enjoy a little fresh air, and um, I'll look forward to um, being back with you, Carl, again when we do our um, August-September issue. That sounds great. And uh, I think I'll go out and get some light therapy right about <laughs> now. So, so that's going to wrap it up for June, July's Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the June-July issue, available, as always, without a paywall at www caringfortheages.com. Dr. Gallick, thanks again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. And now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.